Where does yesterday's future, which is already here, ready, here, ready, here, ready, here, meet today's future, which is about to happen, and tomorrow's future, which could be just minutes away? Welcome to Technology Revolution, the future of now. Where host Bonnie D. Graham asks savvy futurists for their predictions about the tech-driven trends that are shaping our future right now. Here's your host who will take us into the future of now, Bonnie D. Graham. I always get so excited when I hear that intro. That's my co-producer, Ryan Treasure, the VP of Operations and Everything at Voice America Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We've got an interesting show for you, and it's going to be a good show. Good is a key word to our topic today. So let me give you a little background. We're talking about social good. What is it? Sounds interesting. A social good, according to an article I found on investopedia.com of all places, a social good is something that benefits the largest number of people in the largest way, such as clean air. We like that. Clean water. We hope so. Healthcare. We want that. And literacy. Yes. AKA common good, social good can trace its history all the way back to ancient Greece philosophers, and it implies a positive impact on individuals or society in general. Today, it also is used to refer to corporate initiatives that aim to enhance the social contract of corporations, and we want the companies we work for, we want the companies we do business with, we want the companies from which we buy to practice have good practices, best practices to improve the environment and do something good for society. It also is good for employees who want to trust the companies they work for. You want to be proud of the company you work for, proud of the companies you buy from. And we've seen that attributed to millennials in past few years, but I think it's way past one individual demographic cohort. A lot of people feel this way. It's getting good spread. So social media platforms are an efficient way to educate the public. We all know how popular. I don't know how many platforms you're on, but I try to keep it to LinkedIn, Twitter, once in a while, Facebook, once a month now, and not too many others, but you're all on so many. You see so much news, so many blasts, so many opinions. These are a way to educate the public and advocate and fundraise for programs that are supporting what we're calling social good. So we have a panel of specialists, experts, interested individuals. They all specialize in a different aspect of this. Our topic today is the future of connectedness for social good on purpose. That's right. We have IDC's Bob Parker. And Bob, thanks for recruiting a wonderful panel for us. Ruth B. Yesner, who has been on radio with me before, as Bob has. We're welcoming two newcomers, David Rinsel, R-E-I-N-S-E-L. Rinsel, he told me it rhymes with pencil. I said it, Dave. And Cynthia Burkhart. Welcome, everybody. Let's kick this off. Bob Parker, welcome back. Wonderful to see you. Uh, by the way, to our listeners, we're on Zoom. I have the pleasure and privilege of seeing my panelists as they think, not just as they, I watch them, I see how they move and if they sit back or lean in or use their hands so I can see them. You can't, but that's why we love Zoom because we get that extra layer of personal interaction when we do the show. So Bob Parker, please, if there's might be two people in the whole world who don't know who you are, Bob, would you speak to those two people, please? Go ahead. Thanks, Bonnie, and it's great to be back on the on your show. Um, yes, I'm Bob Parker. I'm a senior vice president at IDC. I'm responsible for our coverage of software services and industries. And one of the coverage areas that I'm responsible for is a topic we call digital transformation. And we define that as the uh, application of technology 
for the benefit of business and society. And that second part of that uh, uh, definition for society is really something that um, I'm passionate about. I really think the technologies we talk about can create a lot of the common good you talked about in your introduction. And I've been pleasantly surprised our clients and my colleagues on this panel share that enthusiasm for the potential of technology in particular, in particularly uh, connectedness uh, to deliver that social good. So I'm, I'm excited to get started. Thank you very much, Bob. You were the one who suggested this topic to me. We were talking, you were on one of my Game Changers radio business shows a couple months ago, and I said, hey, Bob, bring me something, and this is it. And Bob, we talk about being connected. We've heard that term in so many different contexts. We've heard it takes a village. We've heard how many iPhones and how many Android phones, how many devices are connected. We're connected by speaking through phones. We're connected visually on the internet. We talk about healthcare connectedness, right? Telemedicine. We talk about connectedness, but today we're focusing on doing it for a purpose that is good. Is this a new concept, Bob? Uh, I don't think so. I think some of the awareness has been raised through the pandemic. Certainly people having to connect remotely uh, to work, uh, people, things like contact tracing, um, and which is obviously completely reliable, uh, uh, dependent on having connectedness. So, you know, I think there's a, it's been part of the conversation, but it necess- hasn't necessarily had the awareness it's had just uh, based on recent events. Thank you very much, Bob. Pleasure to have you on. And thanks again for the topic. And it looks like a great panel. Let's see how great they are. Ruth B. Yesner, welcome. You've been on radio with me many times in the past on Smart Cities Topics. I'm so happy to see you for the first time. So Ruth Thank B., you. in case there were one and a half people in the world who don't know who you are, why don't you introduce yourself to them, please? Go ahead. Sure. So I am part of the industries part of Bob's team that he mentioned in his introduction. So I work at IDC and I lead our government practice, which we call Government Insights. And within that, I manage um, analysts that look at um, technology in the U.S. federal government uh, across the world for our worldwide smart cities and communities practice and in our worldwide education practice. And I would say, you know, I'm best known for launching the Smart Cities and Communities Practice at IDC, which is really, at its essence, all about using technology for social impact. So, um, you know, we talk about the mission of Smart Cities being the digital transformation of communities expressly for environmental, social, and financial impact. So, really excited about the topic today in that way. Um, And just a little bit about my background and how I came to this role. Um, I actually have a social work degree and a business degree. And after I got those master's degrees, I was really fascinated by technology in the social work context. And I went to Silicon Valley and um, started a startup with with some folks there. Um, Eventually, we all got sucked away to other other groups, but really started looking at social entrepreneurship, social venture capital, and everything that was happening around emerging technologies and how they could be applied to sort of social social outcomes. So that goes way back when, um, you know, 15 years ago, but that's really been sort of my, you know, passion for looking at technology um, ever since. 
Thank you, Ruth B. I have a question for you. You mentioned social entrepreneurship. Is the word yeah. good built in after the word social? Is it social entrepreneurship for good? Because we think of social, we think of social media. I'm on Twitter, yeah. I'm on Facebook, yada, yada. Big deal. There's good, there's bad, and there's sometimes a lot of ugly on these platforms. So when you say social entrepreneurship, is the implication social for good? Just, just want to pick your brain a little bit here, Ruth B. Yeah, I think so. And I may be using a term that, you know, I think it's morphed over time. I think the idea was looking at private companies at the time that also had a dual mission for impact in some other ways. So maybe they, you know, were events company, but they were really focused on events for nonprofits. Or maybe they had, you know, there was a dual mission that was incorporating the idea of the triple bottom line not just financial profit and success in startups, but also having some other broader mission. Um, and that's, I think, where the, where the term really, really came from. Thank you. Just wanted to clarify for our listeners. I'm, Bob knows I'm curious about this stuff. Yeah. David Rensel, newcomer to me, to my show. So happy to have you here, David. I don't know how many people know you. Just talk to the world. <laughs> Introduce yourself and a little bit about your passion for the topic, please. David. Lonnie, first time listener, first time caller, first time participant in your show here. <laughs> so uh, you always love to hear that, right? Um, I've been with IDC for over 20 years now. I started out covering just the hard disk drive market. Those drives that store all the data, but I've always been about data. So when it comes to connectedness uh, and at IDC, what we really look at is what's the connection, not just the connection, but what you do with that connection, right? Uh, how much data is being created, why it's being created, but more importantly, what we're doing with all that. Um, you know, you, meant, you asked Bob, why, you know, is it any different? And there's a big difference between getting connected and always being connected. Uh, we have lived our lives looking for a connection so that we can access stuff. But today and in the future, it's about always being connected. And once you can confirm that you always have a connection, the things that you can start to do with that connectivity uh, is really kind of impressive and sometimes a little bit scary. But um, that's kind of my background. I manage a team of about 50 plus analysts that covers everything from consumer to customer experience, to uh, communication, mobility, IoT, uh, security, and the like. Sounds like you've been busy. I have a question for you. And you told me I could call you Dave. Shall I start calling you Dave Rensel now? That's perfect. Thank you. Okay. All right. He said if I call him David, I'll say, never mind. We won't say. Okay. <laughs> Dave, Dave, question for you. Uh, and I was going to ask this to Ruth B., but I'll, I'll shoot this over to you. And Cynthia, you're next. I'll be introducing you in a second. She's so patient. Dave, the question is when you have this this connectedness for good. The opportunity for good is always there. It's a question of what you do with it. Who's in charge? Who's the top dog or, or whatever you want to call that person? Who decides what that good is? Because there's so much competition. I'm looking at the four of you and you represent different parts of this topic. Who decides that budget goes to telemedicine? Who decides that budget goes to lighting in a city, Ruth B? Who decides that that budget goes to uh, something else, uh, a hotline perhaps on a social platform? Is there a, a big competition today for those decisions, Dave? Just wondering. Yeah, that's a great question, Bonnie. And, and, it, and it always, per usual, depends on your perspective, where you sit within an organization and the like. You mentioned earlier in your monologue the, the issue of trust. 
And IDC, we've developed these uh, various future of practices. And one of those, we're talking about the future of connectedness now, but one of the other ones is the future of trust. And there's five pillars to the, to the future of trust. And uh, I won't go through them all, but one of them is ethics and social responsibility. We all want to trust the companies we work for. We all want to trust uh, each other. Um, but the key question is, we will, what are you doing socially? What are you doing by ethics and, and social responsibility? And how, what the decision that you make uh, as, a, as an organization is going to impact what your customers and your employees feel. So I think it, it, a lot of that is influenced by the co- type of company you are, the, the, the type of customers and employees you have, and doing what's good for those individuals. And I think that's what helps to decide how to direct those budgets. Thank you very much for your answer. I appreciate that. Cynthia Burkhart, newcomer to to my shows. To me, you are replacing Lynn Dumbrack, who was unable to join us. And Lynn was so generous in reaching out to you to fill that seat. And Cynthia, we're delighted to have you. So speak to all of us. Tell us your background and what are your thoughts on the topic? Cynthia, welcome. Bonnie, thanks. And uh, I'm delighted to have this opportunity. I work in the healthcare team at IDC, and I got here through a variety of avenues. One is early in my career, I actually was in the healthcare delivery side. So I was bringing healthcare services to women. I was working in family planning who hadn't had access to those before. The issue of inequality struck me way back in my 20s. That converged with the fact that today consumers are very unhappy with healthcare. It's very inconvenient. It's inconsistent. It's not personalized. And technology, I think, is the key to both of those two pieces. One, the inequality. Um, How do I get care to people who don't have phones? Can we build kiosks? I mean, they're just a range of ways that those two issues, I think, can be resolved with technology. Um, I've been fascinated recently to watch kind of the integration of social and human services with healthcare and actually worked with a number of analysts on Ruthby's team, where the recognition that while clinical care is important, it's only about 20% of what drives health. The rest is housing and food and loneliness and a whole range of other issues. And we're beginning to see both healthcare organizations and social service agencies coming together with a recognition that that holistic care um, is what's the right thing to do for people. Um, And I think that's a really big first step to get the kind of care that people need when and where they need it. Um, And again, I think technology has a really key role in that. I mean, you hear these incredible horror stories of, you know, people going home from the hospital with a whole new set of medications. They don't know how to take it. And there's a way to combine both the technology of medication adherence with a a social worker or a home community health aide coming into the home, helping the person get sorted out, and then using technology to kind of follow that up. Um, And so we see that time and time again. And I think with the convergence of economic um, instability, with the pent-up healthcare demands, we're increasingly going to see the use of telehealth, remote patient monitoring, virtual visits, all of the technologies that we've seen as a result of COVID really do have tremendous value. Um, And we're seeing reimbursement for those. We're seeing adoption by physicians. So really a whole new opportunity 
to really bring those technologies to the forefront. Can I add something there? Go ahead, Ruthie. Yes. So I think um, just this theme around the social services aspect of things and how Cynthia was talking about that related to healthcare. And I think we also see that tremendously with public safety, right? The issues, the underlying issues around crime and protests and and safety issues have to do with um, poverty and and um, drug addiction and all sorts of other issues that actually are a little bit beyond what police are trained to do when they come out and respond. So we've seen a lot of social services embedded with police, but it just goes to the fact that, you know, there's lots and lots of social issues that permeate everything obviously in a society and we're beginning to bubble up and see that they're all interconnected and we're also looking at how technology can have better accurate data support people better you know make things safer Um, and so you know it's this really interesting confluence of all sorts of factors that I think all of us are talking about which makes it so fascinating. Thank you very much, Ruth B. Um, I, Cynthia, you're back. I see you got up for a second. Cynthia, interesting you started out talking about connectedness. We all want that, to be connected to people. Loneliness, depression, lo- people feeling isolated, especially now. And Cynthia, I just want to tell you that when I was researching this topic and looking for the opening quote I found from Investopedia, all of the articles I found were about social connection, people reaching out, people feeling part of something, people having a way to talk to other people and connect with them and express feelings and and get rid of that sense of isolation and increase the belongingness. So Cynthia, I wanted to say thank you for bringing that up because that was what I knew Bob didn't have exactly that topic in mind when he suggested this to me. But Mm -hmm. as I was researching it, that was all I found in my initial search was just connectedness for social purposes, which is very, very valid, but we're talking about a bigger sense of social entrepreneurship as, as Ruth B. said. So thank you all. Um, I'm really impressed with all the thought leadership here. And I don't usually go around and ask so many questions in the beginning, but there's so much to talk about on this topic. It's really packed. Bob, that's an accolade to you. This is the part of the show where I've asked my panelists in advance to send me a quote from somebody, a book, a movie, a song, a person, famous or not so famous, and they're going to each tell me in their own words now, after I read a little background on the quote, why they picked the quote and what in the world it has to do with the topic. After we go around the table on the quotes, we'll get to the prediction. So Bob Parker sent a quote from Dwight D. Eisenhower. Bob, I I won't tell you how old I am, but I do remember. Uh, I remember the election. <laughs> I was in the womb, of course. Eisenhower versus, I think it was Adlai Stevenson in the hmm, 19. Hmm, I'm not even going to tell you, but Bob knows what I'm talking about. Everybody's laughing. Okay, Cynthia. I don't know if I don't think you even remember those days, but but I I said, oh, she does. Okay, <laughs> we don't talk about. I'm a boomer. I'll just proudly mention that. I won't tell you what part of the boomer. So Bob sent us a quote from Eisenhower. David Dwight David I. Was his nickname. I like Ike was the slogan. He lived from 1890 to 1969. Uh, he was an American Army general who served as the 34th president of the U.S. from 1953 to 61. We just gave away the de- the ages there. During World War II, he became a five-star general in the U.S. Army and served as supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force in Europe. Here's the quote Bob picked from many, 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 many quotes from Eisenhower. A modern, efficient highway system is essential 
to meet the needs of our growing population, our expanding economy, and our national security. And this was said sometime before he passed away in 1969. Bob, talk to me. Interesting <laughs> quote. Go ahead. Yeah, well, it struck me. I've always been fascinated by the effort here, certainly the hallmark of the Eisenhower administrations, which uh, before my time, uh, not by much, but before my time, but the hallmark of his administration was the creation of the interstate highway system in the United States. And it was a sort of physical connectedness, if you think about it. It it provided economic security because it allowed goods to move to remote locations. Economic security is certainly a, a common good. It provided for national defense, another common good that we don't always talk about. You need safety and security. So I was thinking about this in terms of this was a tremendous public expenditure to create the infrastructure that created the connectedness you needed in the economy of the 1950s. And if we fast forward and we think about the digital connectedness that we're talking about, it's been largely, at least in this country, a private endeavors. The government auctions off bandwidth, the major telecom companies go out and build the infrastructure, and it sort of is what it is. And so one of the things I I believe is that this next generation of connectedness, 5G, whatever, whatever, whatever it is, this pervasive connectedness that Dave talked about, it needs to be a public-private partnership. There needs to be some concerted uh, government effort to, uh, uh, to support the build-out of this infrastructure because it's going to be completely essential to creating the social good, just like the interstate highway system was essential to the progress in the 1950s. And I'll leave you perhaps the model to look at is South Korea, who uh, the government isn't building the infrastructure, but they've set certain standards and expectations. And today, South Korea is probably one of the most connected um, Uh, populations in the world with the highest speed access to the internet. So that was why I chose the Eisenhower quote, because I I do think it's a uh, very relevant to what we're talking about today. And and talking about social good, uh, Bob, I grew up in Long Island in Queens, New York, actually, almost on the Nassau County border. And I remember when they dug down onto Horace Harding Parkway, which was uh, about a block and a half from my house. And they dug down excavation. They created the Long Island Expressway. (laughs) Expressway is the key word. It was supposed to be fast, a way to get into the city and out to the island. We all know, if any of you know New York, that it has been dubbed in recent years the world's longest parking lot. (laughs) And I'm marveling at your quote because Eisenhower died in 69 and the LIE was built during that period when he was still alive. I, re- I was a very little girl when they built it. And I remember because it created right across from street from us instead of a, across the ha- Harsh Harding Expressway, Harsh Harding, whatever they call it, throughway, it created a, a dead end because we could go to the dead end and look down on the LIE. Wow. So it became a joke. And the fact that Eisenhower was saying we need a modern, efficient highway system for our growing population, I look back and I say, yeah, 
right. We tried. Let's just move on from there. Thank you so much for memories. I had to say that. Ruth B., yes, I'm looking at your quote. You picked one from Winston Churchill. We've had many Churchill quotes, but never this one. Sir Leonard, Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill lived from 1874 to 1965. So he predeceased Eisenhower by about four years, was a British statesman, army officer, writer, prime minister of the UK from 40 to 45 when he led the country to victory in the Second World War. And again, he was PM from 51 to 55. And we'll leave all of his political affiliations to those who want to look him up on Wikipedia. Here's the quote. We shape our buildings thereafter. They shape us. Ruth B., how'd you find this one? Well, I'm going to admit I found it by watching the presentation of one of uh, one of my people that report to me <laughs> who was giving a presentation and put this up there. And it led to such a fascinating discussion at this event that it's really stuck with me. And the, the idea of the quote is, we often think like with the highway system or with buildings that we are building them to serve our needs and they come out the way we want and then that's that. And what we never think about is that once we build things, they then influence us and change our behaviors and impact the way we live. So the road system is a great example. You build the roads, everybody goes out and buys a car, there's traffic, there's all sorts of implications. Road system is well cut through neighborhoods. So there's this idea of things that can connect and separate at the same time. And you have to make sure that you're doing it in such a way that, um, you know, there was the wrong side of the tracks. There were specific ways that things were used to, to not connect people. So I really thought about this quote when we think about technology. So the conversation after we, with this quote, um, was actually at this event called uh, AI World Government. So artificial intelligence was the topic. And um, so what happened was after this quote, some of the CIOs, one was from Pittsburgh, um, started to talk about how they had allowed all these pilots of autonomous vehicles to come into the city. And now they were dealing with this behavior change in certain areas because they had an AV going by every 90 seconds. And the pedestrians were not, no longer looking or following the lights because the cars were automatically stopping for them. And they were dealing with, were they going to put up blocks, road things, they were really having this challenge. So I started to look into it and found that similar things had happened in other cities where there was more suicides when they had autonomous subways and, and they had to put up guardrails. And so I started to think about how not only with the built environment, but with technology, we can see how it changes us after we build it. And is that a connector you know, we see social media. On the one hand, there's crowdfunding and GoFundMe pages and, and philanthropy and finding friends, and it's lovely. Um, and on the other hand, there's, you know, cyberbullying and trolling and, and all these new ways that we behave, right, from these technologies. So I think when you think about artificial intelligence and all these other tools, um, there's this, and, and I think Dave mentioned this around digital trust, there's this tremendous area where we are going to be impacted by technology in ways that we probably don't understand yet and we don't understand now, right? We don't understand how things on our feed might be impacting our thinking and all the sophisticated things that are happening with data. So that's really was the heart of the quote is this really fascinating area of, of dual impact as we create things and then they shape us. 
Thank you, Ruth B. Great insights. And I appreciate everything you said about we don't know. We don't know how a building or a community, a neighborhood, a street, a block, a community center, and the social media that we're all using so much today, how they're going to impact one person and then maybe their family and their block and their neighborhood and how what the ripple effect will be. And, and as Bob was talking about a highway system in South Korea, I believe, we have to be connected for good to other parts of the world to see their use cases. How are they experiencing? Maybe we can inform our own choices better by looking at other communities, other neighborhoods, other cultures, other countries. So connectedness is is a term that is just a thread going through everything we're talking about in addition to our topic. Thank you very much. Dave is waiting patiently. Dave, you look patient. I don't know. I don't know you very well. But <laughs> I, I said that to a panelist on, on a Game Changers radio show about two years ago. I said, Bob is our third panelist and he's waiting so patiently and it was Bob's turn to speak. And he said, how do you know I'm patient? I've been sitting here tapping my feet and pounding the desk. What are you going to call on me? So, I, But I still say it as a, as a courtesy. Dave Rensel, Rhymes with Pencil, has sent us a quote from a movie I've never heard of, even though it came out in 2018. It was at a millennium ago. Uh, and on, a 2018 film. It's a 2018 British science fiction thriller film written and directed by Andrew Nichol. And finance, for some reason, they want to put this by Sky Cinema Original Films. That's lovely. It stars Amanda Seyfried and Clive Owen with all kinds of other people. One of my favorites in the supporting cast was Sonia Walger, who was in some very interesting TV shows. One was The Catch a couple of years ago. Fascinating. Anyway, it's set in a futuristic world where privacy and anonymity no longer exist. I don't know if that's the future anymore, Dave. The plot follows a troubled detective played by Clive Owen, who comes across a younger woman, Amanda Seyfried, who has evaded the government's transparency system. It was originally released internationally as a Netflix original on the streaming service and then released through various distribution companies in the UK and Ireland. Here's the quote. Four words. We love short quotes. Here we go, Dave. Anonymity is the enemy. Did I do that okay? Talk to me, Dave. Yeah, you make me want to stop right now and go watch it again, Bonnie. Nice job. <laughs> uh, anonymity is the enemy. The, the whole, uh, Ruth, we mentioned crime, right? And, and you just got done mentioning, um, you know, when, when you get to this connectedness, uh, what are the, what's the outcome that you're looking for? And, and, and I think everything in life, really, you do something with an expected outcome, but then there's these unintended consequences that you hadn't thought of before. Uh, but when we think about crime, when we think about a world where uh, how to reduce the negative things that happen within that world, we think that if we can monitor everything, then there's this, either it's a deterrent or there's a level of control that we can apply to keep these negative things from happening, which would then the outcome be a better life or a better society. And so in this movie, as you correctly uh, positioned, everything there, there is no such thing as anonymous. And I actually watched the movie again and, and started pulling. That was my favorite quote. I have a list of like 18 more that are just so good. But I'm going to read one more because it just uh, is, is great. It says, you invade my privacy. It's nothing. I try to get it back and it's a crime. And I think that was it, it, it just stops and makes you think, Sure, I love this connectedness because it brings good things to me, but then there are the nefarious things, the unintended consequences that happen as a result of it. And there's this, it's one of my predictions, so I won't get into it in case you ask it, but there's this healthy tension between 
the benefit I get from connectedness and the privacy that I maybe have to give up in order to get it. So I love that quote, the uh, uh, anonymity quote. It, it just, uh, it, it really struck with me. Yep. And Dave, I believe in Europe, there's a law called the right to be forgotten. Yep. And this might have been the precursor to GDPR, Global Data Protection uh, Regulation, and yep. how hard people try to avoid. And, and it's always a curiosity to me. Uh, Dave knows, I, uh, Bob knows that I, I tweet. I was tweeting before Zoom a lot before all of these radio shows to promote them. And I would find a guest who didn't have a Twitter handle. And it would always amaze me that their name showed up, the full name, without a handle or a hashtag attached to it. And I'm thinking anonymity, privacy. Do they just, I have people who say, I just don't like Twitter. That's yeah. fine. That's a personal choice. But that connectedness, that anonymity, uh, what do you want people? Somebody recently cloned my Twitter account last week. And I got some, some emails from one person that has two people from SAP. And one of them said to me, how is your trombone lesson? How are your trombone? Play? And they knew damn well, I'm a drummer. And they waited for me to respond. And I said, I don't play trombone. He said, I knew it. Somebody cloned my, AK, my Radio Red 777 account, but they did it in a way that when I went in to try and find them or delete them, it went to my real account. Mm. So it was me. It was my account with my password, my picture, my profile, but it was a sub name that was using my real name as another. So and I was furious for a couple of days. I, I posted a, a report to Twitter and I said, it's, it's a masqueraded cloned account. I don't know if they've done anything. It seems to have stopped. But privacy and anonymity, I think that barn door opened and a lot of horses got out <laughs> a long time ago. Thank you for that. And Cynthia Burkhardt, I know she's waiting patiently. Cynthia has brought us a quote from Albert Camus. Those of you too young to have studied French literature in college like I did, it's C-A-M-U-S, 1913 to 1960. They all seemed to have passed away around that time of of life there in the 60s, 50s. He was a French philosopher, author, and journalist. He won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1957 at the age of 44. And I told Cynthia, my research showed that Camus was the second youngest recipient in history. Rudyard Kipling won the Nobel in Literature at age 42, two years younger. Uh, Camus was in Paris when the Germans invaded France during World War II in 1940. He tried to flee, but finally joined the French resistance. This is why I'm bringing this up. He served as editor-in-chief at combat, an outlawed newspaper. So he was quite the interesting guy. Then he became a celebrity after the war and started giving lectures all over the world. His novels, I'll say them in French and then I'll translate them, L'Etranger, I read that in college, uh, The Stranger, La Peste, The Plague, La Chute, The Fall, and Le Premier Homme, The First Man. He also wrote many famous plays. Cynthia, here's the quote you selected for us, Real Generosity for the Future lies in giving all to the present. That's very poetic. Cynthia, talk to me about your quote. Well, I think that we've been experiencing a real time of generosity um, through the pandemic. And we've seen it, I've seen it in a number of ways. Personally, I have a neighbor who built a neighborhood library for us so we can stroll down the street and pick up a book. Um, I've also seen it in the technology market. Um, the vendors I've talked to, the end users that I've talked to, um, accomplished amazing things in very short periods of time. Vendors were able to put up the CDC guidelines for COVID screening in hours instead of months. 
individual organizations that had intended to deploy a piece of technology over a five or six month period of time were able to really bring that back to a couple of weeks. So it really showed me the, the impact of generosity, both on the person to person connection. I can stroll to my neighbor's house and pick up a book. Um, and, and also the, one of the real drivers of technology success, I think is about the generosity and about the output of the people designing it, of people uh, implementing, people upgrading. Um, and time and time again, I heard organizations talk about, well, we used to sit here and say, oh, I don't think this technology can really do that. And now we're saying, how do we get this technology to solve our business problem today? And, and, and that, I think, is really being driven by the human aspect of generosity in combination with the technology. And I've always been a real believer in it's not the technology that makes us successful. It's how we consume it. It's how we adopt it. It's how we democratize it that gives us a success. So that real interaction between the machine and the human about a year and a half ago, IDC actually built a model, um, the AI framework for automation, which helped to understand early days, it's all about the human being. And as we use technology, the technology is taking over some of the tasks that used to occur or be done by individuals. And, and that really helped me understand and think about the interplay between the human and the machine. And it's getting that right that I think will bring us a brighter future. Um, even the example I gave earlier of um, a social worker or a community worker going into someone's home to help figure out and sort out medications can be complemented and supplemented with technology once you've had that human interaction and that ability to really understand what's going on. So I think for me, the critical issue is that combination of man and machine. Um, and understanding that and, and where the machine can do things better than we can and where we still need to keep that human touch um, and that human generosity, if you will, to, um, to bring us success. So that was my thinking on the whole notion of, of generosity. Thank you, Cynthia. I'm really glad you brought that up. We've heard the phrase for many, many years, I want to give back to my community. I want to give back to the world. I've benefited from whatever it was. I've had a good life, good education, good family, whatever it is, wealth in business. I want to give back. And then we started to hear the word paying it forward. Like if you go through a drive-through, right. you can find any open now and somebody has paid for your coffee when you get there. The, per the person in front of you in the car ahead of you paid for you and you think, wow, somebody paid it literally forward. So generosity is interesting. And what's interesting, Cynthia, I'm glad you brought up AI, humans and machines. The question is, how do we teach generosity and that spirit of good to our machines comes down to, I believe, the bias of the person teaching the machines. Who picks the data that does the machine learning, the training, the deep learning? 
Who picks that data? What is their bias? What are the limits of that machine, of that AI algorithm? Who designed it? What are their, I'll use the word prejudices, biases. How do we keep it out of that? Once they get popular, how do we bring it back? How do we control it? Dave, back to your thought about anonymity and trust somebody mentioned. How do we trust who decided what that machine will do? How will that customer service bot talk to us on a phone, on a, on a, a website? I, I uh, recently got a brand new machine, we'll say, took six weeks, supply chain issues, and I needed to get a license. I did a clean install, and I needed to download a copy of a, of a program that I had paid for a lot of money a couple weeks before I transferred. So I got into this, this chat. I didn't know it was a bot or a person on the live chat part of the website for this particular program. And whoever it was understood my problem so quickly and said, here is the website I want you to go to to download it. And here is the activation code because we know you're a customer. All I had to do is put in my phone number and my email address. They found my record in a matter of two or three minutes. They sent me the code. I copied it out of chat, pasted it in, and the program was downloaded without any problem. This to me was a good thing. I don't know if it was a bot. I think she was a person, but it didn't matter. There was efficiency and somebody decided that live chat would pop up on that screen at that time when they needed, they would answer my question. So that was generous, Cynthia. That was a generosity from the vendor to me instead of saying, well, we don't let you put on another machine and you haven't <laughs> logged in until we, I didn't tell them all of the, all of their extensions have been bombing on all of my computers and causing a lot of downtime. I didn't tell them that, but I paid for it and I wanted it. So there. So now it's time for the predictions. We have been talking, we're, we only have 15 minutes left. So let's just bang through these predictions. Let's start with one from each of you. See if we can get to two. Bob, I'm picking your first one. Here's what Bob told me. By 2023, we like that year, the economy will reach digital supremacy, where more than half of GDP will be derived from digitally enabled products and services. Bob, why don't you take about a minute and a half and unpack this for me? Sure. So this goes back to that initial notion around the quote where part of social good is uh, economic stability and economic opportunity, right? If the general happiness of your population is going to be very tied to their belief that they're participating in their flourishing. So uh, I chose this prediction because um, the dependency on connectedness in the digitally, as it relates to the digital economy, is going to represent the biggest factor in people flourishing and participating and being happy. So that's why I thought that prediction is important. So we sometimes separate social good efforts from economic efforts, and you were very explicit, let's not talk B2B, but I do think they're very hard to untangle the two, and I think they're very related, and sometimes those uh, focused on social good don't consider the economic consequences, and those focused on the economic growth aren't focused enough on the social consequences. So um, I think this prediction is important to make sure that they stay together and stay integrated. 
Thank you very much. I'm going to go to Ruth B. I'm looking at your prediction number four. Let me read it. You say by 2024, going one year past Bob's prediction, 90% of greenfield cities and 20% of existing cities globally will adopt digital space planning capabilities and new zoning regulations to realize the benefits of the growing sharing economy. There's so much content in that prediction, Ruth B. Can you unpack it for us in about two minutes? Go ahead. We could do all yeah. so on this one. Go ahead. Yeah, so two minutes or less. Um, actually, I think we're going to revamp this prediction. It's from our 2020, it's from our predictions last year. We're going to revamp it. I think it's going to be higher than 20% of existing cities. I think we've seen it all over the U.S. with, with COVID, where they have really changed outdoor dining and how you can use parking spaces and street, street planning. So the original intent was the idea of connectedness and the sharing economy and how that's impacted us with Ubers and Lyfts and Airbnbs and how that's caused some changes in, in policy or bylaws within cities. But I think now we've even taken that further with the COVID pandemic where you have people who are desperate for connectedness, but they have to do it safely. And how that now changes how we use our streets and how we allow people to be outside and and get that connection and, and stimulate the economy, as Bob was saying. Um, and I think so, I think we're gonna see tremendous movement on, on that prediction um, with more and more cities really thinking about green space and space use and, and how there's walking and there doesn't have to be cars and how there can be outdoor seating and how, uh, just in another thinking about connection, how they enable contactless <laughs> service. So a lot of changes there with thinking about how, where you want people to be able to be and how and how far apart, and then how you want people to have contactless service and how that might change road use and parking lots and, and restaurants and, and all sorts of things for contactless service. So a lot of, I think, space planning and changes happening very quickly in, in cities and communities all over. Thank you, Ruthby. I'm so intrigued by digital space planning. Let's go on to Dave Rensel's prediction number three. There is a tension, this is interesting, between the information gathered from connectedness and how it is used. For example, I can't think of a TV series, a whodunit or a why done it anywhere, Dave, that isn't using the next concept, video surveillance footage. Using it to deter crime is good, but using it to invade privacy, not so good. There's a usage threshold that must not be crossed if connectedness is going to reach its full protection. And here's the key. Privacy must be maintained. How in the world, Dave? What do you see? Yeah, so this goes back to that, you know, the movie Anon or, um, you know, you, you pick, pick, pick your application. I mean, if we think about the Boston Marathon where there was this horrendous uh, explosion, video surveillance was used in a very amazing way to stitch together the uh, progress of the actual uh, uh, assailants, right? And, and that was used in a very, very positive way. Now, balance that with, uh, let's say, a, a project in China called Project Dazzling Snow, where they're using uh, surveillance to really track the movement and activity of uh, uh, citizens to develop what's called a social credit score, right? So are you boarding a train illegally or not? Are you purchasing things you should or shouldn't? It reminds me of a book I read uh, a long time ago called This Perfect Day by Ira Levin. Um, and it, 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 look, 
this all and, and this all boils back to what what are we using this technology for? Uh, social good uh, or surveillance state, or you know, is it an invasion of privacy? So that's what that prediction is all about. You have to find that balance. And look, it's different for every generation, for every geography, for every uh, gender. It doesn't matter because people have different thresholds of how much privacy they're willing to give up to reap the benefits of what that connectedness brings to them. Thank you very much, Dave. It's always intriguing when we get to those thriller shows. I'm watching an interesting show called The Blue Rose. I think it was created in Australia um, by a little, little group of people who become friends because somebody was murdered. And very often they're looking at footage. They're going to, we want to see your security footage. We want to see your CCTV recording. Well, the camera was off. No, it wasn't. Who was hiding this? Who was hiding that? And it's fascinating to see one woman has blackouts in another show I'm watching. She has blackouts. And she didn't know what she did. She just woke up with yeah. blood all over her hands in a bathtub somewhere. And she didn't. So she has to find a way to get the footage of where she was that night to see what she was doing to try and reconstruct. That was Marcella. I'm giving away my, my yeah. TV preferences here. Okay, Cynthia. Can I, ask a, can I yeah. add a quick sure. thing? A super, sure, super fast, which I think yeah. is really interesting. And this is where the consumer, the constituent, the patient becomes really important because... For example, we were doing um, a project with the city. They really wanted to employ some video surveillance, and they also want, did a citizen survey. Well, the citizen survey came back and said everyone felt really safe, and they were much more concerned about water. Um, and as we talked about that with the city leadership, uh, this was not a U.S. city. Um, it was clear that they really wanted it for other reasons, and it wasn't for safety. It was more social order. <laughs> and so we were able to go and say, well, you've got a decision because your citizens actually don't want this and they really want you to invest in, in other technology. So I think that's where the consumer, the user, the, the other folks' voices becomes really important to balance out and provide sort of a checks and balances to companies or governments or things like that. Thank you, Ruth B. And let's move to Cynthia. Prediction number three, driven by rising consumer expectations 60% of healthcare providers will make optimizing the digital patient experience a top three strategic imperative by 2020. That's this year. Are we running out of time? Cynthia, talk to me. No, actually, I think we're accelerating. Um, <clears throat> clearly, there's been the introduction of a lot of technology to make consumers, patients, allow them to receive care. I mean, virtual visits is a perfect example. Healthcare organizations were not prepared to um, deploy virtual visits, but they figured out, well, okay, in this circumstance, we'll let them use um, FaceTime, we'll let them use Zoom. It doesn't have to be, you know, medical, clinical grade um, <clears throat> connection. And so providers were just letting their physicians and nurses do what they could. Um, and so I think we've really seen the adoption of technology, the focus on what does the patient need, um, really <clears throat> moving us towards this direction. Virtually all the surveys that we conduct, that we see, um, identify improving the patient experience as a high priority. Um, I just did a survey uh, internationally around um, the adoption of AI in healthcare. The number one driver was patient experience, and it wasn't just by a percentage or two. It was really significant. Um, and so I continue to see and be optimistic 
um, in part, a little bit of a silver lining um, around the COVID pandemic that the digital experience um, will be improved for providers. Um, and we, we're talking a lot about what we call the digital front door. And the digital front door is a set of technologies that help a patient through their journey. So it could be wayfaring. So how do I get onto a large uh, delivery system campus and find my way to the radiology lab? It could be how can I schedule a set of appointments, you know, at the same institution on the same day? Um, how do I prepare for my visit with my primary care physician? And we're seeing those in almost point solutions today. So they exist. And I think the challenge ahead of us then is really how do we bring those together on a single platform so we're not duplicating things? We're not, um, we don't miss opportunities. So it's really creating that single platform and, and acting almost like a traffic cop in terms of the communication electronically or digitally between patients and their delivery systems. Um, and one of the things that we've seen in some of the survey results is consumers had never used a healthcare bot before, but they could get onto a site, put their what they thought were their COVID symptoms in, they could get results about what they should do next. Um, they could um, keep track of their healthcare issues um, using these bots. And I think 78% of them who had used it said they were extremely pleased with, again, that convenience, as you were talking about earlier, of I don't have to get into my car and deal with traffic to get to my doctor's office. I can get information right here, right now, um, that is validated um, to improve my healthcare experience. And so I think we're seeing it today. We'll only see it continue to grow and become more sophisticated and, and more integrated as we move forward. Thank you, Cynthia. Great predictions, everybody. Bob, I'm going to sneak in one more. We've got two and a half minutes till the end of the show, but I want you to cover this. You say goodbye to waste. Today, more than half of the energy generated is never used. 40% of the food produced is never consumed. Connectedness will bring new levels of monitoring and when combined with intelligence, significantly reduce economic waste. Economic waste, food waste. Bob, what do you want to focus on? 60 seconds. What do you see? Well, this goes back to the previous uh, prediction, Bonnie, this kind of combination of economic good and social good. So if you think about that connected energy grid, not only do you not waste the energy you produce, you can incorporate renewable uh, generation of energy so you can lower the carbon footprint. In food, it's not just more profit for the food companies. It also allows consumers to make sure that the providers of the food are socially responsible because I'm connected and tracing. If you take that even one step further into Cynthia and Ruthby's area, if people can understand better the food that they're consuming, we can address population health issues like acute conditions like diabetes. So um, it's just a great example of the more connected I am, the more data I have, the more intelligent I am, the uh, more social good I can generate. Thank you very much. 
Bob Parker, you have assembled a wonderful panel of smart, savvy, engaging, and invested people in this topic. I'm so happy that you you agreed to do the show and that you generously brought us. And a shout out to Lynn Dunbrack for introducing us to Cynthia Burkhardt. Cynthia, thank you for joining us on very, very short notice. So I'm going to say thank you to all of you. And I'm going to say thank you to our engineer extraordinaire, Aaron Keller, at World Talk Radio Voice America, the business channel. Thank you to my co-producer, Ryan Treasure, who's wonderful voice introduced the show and I'm going to say thank you to all for tuning into Technology Revolution the Future of Now. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. I certainly did and I learned a lot and remember and my panelists are all going to wave goodbye in a second. I queued them up there. Uh, remember the future of now. Somebody says to you the future is already here. You say to them no, no, no. That was yesterday's future. Today's future has not happened yet and we're all here to make it a better future and we're all going to do it together. Remember be safe, be smart, be savvy. I'm going to say it, wear the damn mask and keep your, <laughs> your droplets away from other people and stay away from theirs. We got to be safe. Let's do this together. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. Everybody wave. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Thanks, Bonnie. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.